Hello, and welcome everyone to today's episode of Accelerating Texas K-12 Education. I'm your host, as always, J.W. Marshall with Summit K-12, and we're so glad that you found us on today's episode. We've got a great guest lined up for uh, this episode. We have with us Ronnie Buren, and she is the president of TC Teller. Ronnie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. Um, and we uh, recently met Ronnie at the TC Tele conference uh, not too long ago. Um, Ronnie, we always like to start out our show uh, giving you a chance to introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, and we ask, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Well, my name is Ronnie Buren and I am a, I think, 19 year educator, maybe 20. I can't ever, I'm, I've lost count at about year 15. Um, and uh, I'm a long time, I was a classroom teacher for 11 years for high school. I did 9th, 10th, and 12th grade. And then I got a master's degree and I was a curriculum instru- uh, curriculum director. And now I'm a uh, adjunct professor at the University of Houston. And I'm a lover of children and a lover of books and a lover of justice. So those are my things. And what I love about what I do is I just get to meet kids. I get to, to talk to kids all the time about books and I get to talk to teachers about books and writing. And that is to me the most exciting thing ever. I love it. And before we dive into the, today's topic, um, for my audience, anyone that's not familiar with TC Teller, tell us a little bit about um, the TC Teller organization. So uh, TCTLA stands for the Texas Council for Teachers of English Language Arts, and we are an affiliate of NCTE, the National Council for Teachers of English. And so what I tell people is NCTE is like the big dog, right? They are the big national English teacher organization, um, and we... um, We are an affiliate uh, here in Texas, and I believe we're the largest affiliate, and we focus on supporting teachers in uh, in the ELA classroom, the English Language Arts and Reading. Uh, We have an annual conference, um, usually every January, sometimes early February, and I would say the bulk of the work that you see from our organization comes from our sections. So we have a teacher development section that focuses on teacher development. A high school, middle school, and elementary section. And so the bulk of what we do sort of happens in our section work with building, say, book lists for, for teachers knowing, okay, these are great books for third grade. These are great books for teaching this concept for high school. So that's where you see kind of the heart of TCTLA. The conferences are gathering where we kind of get revived and amped up for the, you know, for the, the year. Um, but the bulk of the work happens, you know, our, our president-elect calls it the dash, right? That dash in between this conference and that conference. I love it. And that's so important. And we're seeing that with more and more conferences that it's not just about the one-time annual conference. It really is about the year-round work that you do. Um, and that that conference is just kind of the icing on top where you get to get together and see each other and, you know, do some intensive work, but it really is supporting the work you do year-round, which I, I think is really um, a great shift that we're seeing overall, and it sounds like something you've been doing all along, which is wonderful. Um, now let's dive right in uh, to our topic. You've already kind of brought it up, um, but let's talk about student choice in reading and um, set the stage for us a little bit and uh, maybe talk about, um, you know, student choice uh, over time. Has it changed? Uh, is it the same? And where are we at today and where should we move forward as far as student choice in reading? So what I would say is for those of us who are at least my age, and I'm going to tell you, I'm 44. So <laughs> so for those of us, maybe my age, and I would say probably really a lot of us adults, you know, maybe people who aren't in their 20s, you know, don't have this experience. But when we went to school, um, we had English teachers who were good. Maybe some needed a little help, um, but they would tell us these are the books you're reading. And they would give us books. Now, when we came to choice, maybe our parents would take us to the bookstore and they would let us read the Babysitter's Club or they would let us read, you know, books that we wanted to read. But for the most part, when it came to in-school reading, it was, these are the books you're going to read. See you later, right? Here are the, the classics. And this is what you're reading in the fifth grade. You know, that's it. That's your choice is my choice. I choose and you choose to like it or not, but you still are going to read it. 
So that was sort of the, the, the history of student choice, I guess. But over time, what people started to see was kids who became lifelong readers, were kids who were able to choose the books they wanted to read, right? They were able to, they had this sort of steady diet of, of choice where they were picking, they wanted to read this book and they wanted to read that book. And they found that students who were able to sustain their reading life, who became lifelong readers as adults, uh, were students who had more and more choice. And so the student choice movement has grown, has grown, has grown. And not that it's not ever been there, right? But it has now become a much more accepted practice where teachers are starting to see that, number one, I need a classroom library, right? I need students to be able to get up out of their desk and walk over to a bookshelf in my classroom and pick up a book. We've even seen, there's, there's actually a research study that talked about, uh, they, they compared two classrooms. They had one teacher who had a classroom library and they had another teacher whose classroom was literally right across the hallway from the school library. And the students in the classroom with the classroom library read more frequently because they were able to get up and go touch those books regularly, right? So the idea of student choice has really come sort of in vogue, and I think it's here. We're seeing it in our state-required TEKS, right? We're even seeing that the state is recognizing that student choice matters because students need, able to, need to be able to choose their books. And, and from kinder to 12th, like it's not even, it used to be like, okay, older kids maybe can choose their books, but little kids can't choose their books. Um, and so that's kind of where we are, where everybody is starting to recognize that kids need to be able to choose their books. And not that there aren't books that we aren't requiring. We realize that we need to, there, there are certain books that like, okay, they might need to read this, especially when we start talking about the AP exam, right? And students needing to be able to be exposed to certain titles. Um, we're all, the, the research has shown us that when students have choice regularly, that they're much more accepting when they don't have a choice, right? So no choice becomes more palatable because they know, well, I have a lot of other choices. So when it's time to read maybe a book I'm not so excited about, I'll go ahead and read it um, because I also have other choices. Um, and then what we also see with student choice is that students are reading more and that's the goal, right? <laughs> the goal is for students always to be reading. And so when students are reading often, when it comes to those more complex texts, because they are sort of exercising the reading muscle because they're reading what they like, um, they're able to get through those more complex texts. And that's what we want to see, right? We want to see kids be able to be, read more sophisticated works. Um, and that only comes with exercising what we call the reading muscle. And I'm a similar age to you. I remember the Book It uh, program when I was uh, younger, uh, where we would have a, a pin and we would get stars for the books. And then I think we got a free personal pan pizza from Pizza Hut. No, <laughs> no plug for them, you know, but uh, but it was motivating. But I do remember it was a very limited number of books we could choose. And I think at the time it's because they only had a, a 10 question quiz on certain books. What 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 were the deterrents or maybe still are some of the deterrents for um, not giving students more student choices at lack of having of the classroom library or um, you just uh, teachers, you know, not thinking expansively. What, what is, are is still holding us back from really embracing student choice? Oh, that's a great question. I love that. I think number one, yes, student li li classroom library. Um, you know, <laughs> not like teachers are paid all the money in the world, right? <laughs> but uh, classroom library, I think, becomes a number one deterrent. Right? Is that you? You're like, well, I don't have enough books. I don't. You know, maybe I only have ten books. You know, so so classroom library is definitely a deterrent. And I would say another deterrent is probably some teacher fear, right? That, you know, one of the main questions I get asked all the time is, well, how can I have a book in my classroom library if I've never read that book? And then how do I know a student is reading that book? And so teachers are apprehensive because they think they need to have, to have read all the books in their classroom library or all the books in the library in order for to encourage students to read independently. And that's just not the case. And so I think um, sort of teaching teachers how to work through that, right? That, you know, you're, you don't necessarily have to have read that book to be able to ask students questions about that book, right? You can still ask students great reader response questions. What's happening with this character? Tell me about the conflict. Um, and you'll know, right? We, you know, some of our, you know, our kids are a little squirrely and they know how to fake read. 
But if we ask the right questions, uh, we can really kind of assess whether or not students are reading. So classroom library, a little bit of teacher apprehension. And then I would say this too, because we have so many students who still haven't been exposed to um, student choice, if they come to a teacher like me who maybe is giving them all this choice, they don't know how to choose, right? They Maybe they've never been exposed. And so they're like, what do you mean, miss? Like, choose? Like, choose my own book? Like, how? Or they've been kind of given all this assigned reading. And so maybe they get to me in ninth or 10th grade. I saw this at the high school level. So now they've decided they hate reading. I hate reading. And I'm like, no, you don't. You just hate reading what you don't like, right? And that's me. I don't, I don't want to read what I don't like. I don't, I don't like reading things I hate either. So I think that student motivation part becomes a challenge to student choice when they've sort of decided that, like, I hate reading <laughs> because they've not been given enough choice. Um, and so that's something that TCTLA is trying to change, trying to change that conversation. We're always talking about that as, at, at our conference. Um, we talk about book list. That's the fun part of, you know, the conference is that you get to, you get exposed to so many books. You, this is a great fifth grade book. This is a great book. I think teachers walk away from our conferences, um, you know, go, visiting our vendors and hearing different conversations and different, um, different concurrent sessions where they're like, oh, this is a great book for fifth grade. Or I thought this was only an elementary book. It's a great to use in the ninth grade classroom to teach something like this. So that's kind of the fun part of the conference is being exposed to more books for teachers. I love that. And I love um, one of the things I picked up during uh, Kelly Gallagher's uh, talk was um, not always focusing on the entire book, like a book report, but focusing on a certain chapter or relating that chapter. I think he was talking about Romeo and Juliet, uh, that scene and comparing it to a movie scene. And, you know, did they capture the essence of what the written text was and just some creative strategies like that, that I picked up in just an hour of absorbing uh, some of the um, you know presentations at the conference that really uh, sound like, you know, strategies that all English teachers would benefit from. Uh, you know, moving forward. And uh, that's kind of to your point of not having read all the books. Obviously, they've mostly read Romeo and Juliet, but uh, you could ask those questions about any chapter or any scene uh, from a book and really pick up if the students are, you know, getting that information and at what level, surface level or deeper level. That's right. That's right. I, I love that too. And I, I actually just had a conversation. So I teach uh, a, a content area literacy course at the University of Houston. And so this is anybody who's getting a teacher certification. I believe they're all secondary. So science, future science teachers, future math teachers. And I was talking to them about books and in their own classroom, like even encouraging them that even in the science classroom, you can have a classroom library. There are books that support science ideas. There are books that support um, history, social studies ideas, math ideas, right? And I told them too, I said, it's okay if you recommend a book that already has a movie. Um, there are many books that I read because I watched the movie first. So when I was teaching, that's when Twilight was huge. It first came out, right? And all my students were reading Twilight every day, all day, and I hadn't read it. And I was thinking, this probably isn't that good, right? So the following summer, I was up late one night and the movie came on. And I said, well, let me go ahead and watch the movie. I fell in love. I loved it. So then I went back and read the book, right? And so I talked to them about how that same, to Kelly, Cal to Kelly, Kelly Gallagher's point, you can talk to kids about like, what did the movie capture that, that you wish that, what didn't the movie capture that you wish they would have? Or what's something that they did in the movie that wasn't in the book? And it's kind of a good thing that they did that, right? It, and so all of that is a way to teach kids about reading, right? It's, and I think sometimes teachers get afraid, like, oh, they're going to watch the movie first that's okay. I, that's fine. When I taught Macbeth, we watched the whole play first and then we went back and looked at the words, but it's okay. <laughs> well, yeah, and a great uh, opportunity to compare and contrast, right? Uh, yeah, between absolutely. the two. Okay. So now you, you kind of opened the, the can a little bit in the different uh, types of books that are on science, social studies, um, talk to me in general about diversity of books uh, in a number of different levels and why that maybe has uh, been slower to, uh, you know, arrive and the importance in um, student choice and diversity of books. Yeah. So so this is one of the topics I'm just super, super passionate about. Love, you know, having this conversation. 
about diverse books. Um, so part of my, my research uh, for my dissertation was about diversity in, in children's books or diversity in books. And something that um, a phrase coined by Lucille uh, Bishop is that children need mirrors and windows, right? So when children are reading books, they need a mirror first, right? They need to be able to see themselves in a book. Um, that's one of the first ways to get a kid interested in a book is that they see themselves, they see their story. And then they need windows, meaning they need to be able to see into the lives of other people, right? How do other people live? How do other people exist? How do other people's families look, right? And so when it comes to student choice, a lot of times we, like I said, we'll get those students who say, I don't like reading. I don't, I don't like it. I, you know, and because those students have not been given a whole lot of choices, which usually means they haven't been given a whole lot of mirrors, right? They've not seen themselves in stories and books. And so when we talk about students who have been traditionally marginalized, just students of color, students who come from families that don't look like the sort of traditional family, which we know idea is changing altogether, right? You know, looking at our country. But when when they they are students who just have something quote unquote different than traditional, different than the mainstream, and they've not been able to see themselves in books and stories, those things sort of they they push that away, right? They you know they're like, I don't ever see myself. This isn't my life. I don't I don't know this, right? One an amazing speech I heard was from um uh, a journalist, uh, Soledad O'Brien, who's done great work. And she came to U of H a few years ago and she said, um, I always knew what, what was in books was important because I, I knew that words were important, right? I knew anything in a book was important. And she said, uh, and she's a, um, a Afro-Latina woman. And she said, but I never saw myself in books. So I didn't know if I was important. And I thought, blew my mind when I heard that. That's just amazing. And then she said when she got to college, she read a book called Bless Me Ultima, which is a, a, a story about um, Latinx, a, a Latina family, right? And she said, and I saw my, my aunts and my uncles and my tias and my tios, and I thought, oh my God, I'm important. Like, look at me, my family's in a book. And so when it comes to diversity in children's books, right, that is why it's so important because students are, when we're talking about student choice, we need to give them choices where they can see themselves, right? And then we need to give them choices where they can see other people, right? I just recommended a book to a group of students um, called, I, I want to say it's Beneath the Stars or, or Where Stars Are Scattered. I'm, I'm messing up the title, I know. But it's a graphic novel and it's about some it's about a young boy in a refugee camp and getting uh, being allowed to go to school. And I, I was telling you know them, this is great for your students because maybe they've never heard of a student in a, a, a child in a refugee camp. Maybe they have no idea what that's like. And so this gives them a mirror into someone else's life, right? And so in that way, diversity matters because we need to be able to give kids a window, a mirror into their own lives, but windows into the other lives. And then when you talk about diversity of topic, right, that same deal, uh, we want, you know, teachers recommending sci-fi sci books because sci-fi books have a scientific fact, right? And we don't want teachers to just recommend novels because all of our students don't love story. Some of our students want nonfiction books. They want books about motorcycles. They want books about, you know, how to, how to do something, right? So that's that level of diversity matters too, because we can't assume that all of our students want to read a story about this, about someone who's fallen in love. I think that teachers are often guilty of this, right? Because we recommend the books that we love. We're like, this story is so sweet. And our students are like, I hate that story. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, do you have any Guinness book books, right? Or do you have any poetry? You know, they love Shel Silverstein. Like, I would like that kind of book. So diversity in who the stories are about, diversity in genre, um, diversity in, in, you know, graphic novels and poetry, all of that matters when we talk about giving students choices because our students are diverse, right? Our students like all kinds of things, right? And we don't just say, oh, this book, this here's a, a young man. Uh, let me give him all the books about boys. Well, they may not want to read all the books about boys, you know, or all the girls might not want to read a love story, right? So having diversity in your classroom library, having diverse books about locations and ideas, and stories, uh, genres, all of that matters when we're going to be, if we're going to encourage student choice, because we need to be able to tell students, these are all the kinds of books you can choose from, not just these six or seven books about these six titles or these six kinds of people. 
And I love the balance between finding books that you see yourself in and maybe are your initial interest. I love sports. I love, you know, but then expanding into the different areas because you never know what students may find that they like that they didn't know that they liked or confirming that, you know, I read this book and I didn't really love it. So now I know uh, and, I, and I can, you know, try something different. And, and I love that that really promotes, you know, just the expansion of the mind, right, into the windows of other people and other topics, um, but also seeing themselves. Uh, we talk a lot about um, equality versus equity um, on this show as well, um, and that we really did close a lot of the digital divides. We're not there yet over the last two years in the pandemic um, and getting devices to, to kids, but we still have a long way to go there, but really not confusing that with equity. That to your point, having students, you meet them where they're at, having them see themselves in the mirrors. Um, what progress have we made and what more can we be doing right now this year um, to continue to bring equity to our students, in particular in relation to their reading? Yeah, so I, I love that. I love that conversation around equity and equality. Uh, I'm sure you've seen that that graphic that talks about equity or you know equality. Everybody has sort of everybody's trying to watch the baseball game. Everybody has the same you know uh, box they're standing on, but but every, they're all different heights, right? And then equity is everybody needs a box to fit their height for the fence. Um, and so when we have conversations about equity uh, in in books and and book choice. Uh, conversations that we have to have at the district level, right, about teacher access to books, teacher access to classroom libraries. There are some districts that when you go into that district to work, you're going to get a classroom library, like they're going to give it to you. There are some that are like, good luck to you, right? So when we have that, and then so if, we, if we're having conversations about, uh, you know, students and reading scores and why certain students aren't scoring well and why certain students are scoring well on our, our state assessments or even at the, our district level assessments, we have to look at who has access to books, right? And what can we do to give kids more access to books? Uh, this is where, you know, public libraries come into play and maybe the public library is my favorite thing that we do ever, like in the world like <laughs> I love the library <laughs> like I want to be in the library all the time whenever I'm like mm, I mean to like I want to go sit at Starbucks or I want to go sit in the library like if there if libraries had a Starbucks or a coffee shop listen I may never come home I <laughs> <laughs> I think I would go there and I'm just like, I'm never leaving here, right? Uh, so I think something I've seen for a lot of school districts, uh, especially these sort of larger urban school districts, Houston Independent School District being one of them, I'm pretty sure Dallas ISD does this as well, um, but all their students have a uh, have access to the Dallas Public Library or the Houston Public Library, right? Um, and then getting, like you said, that digital divide, especially here in the pandemic, getting students one-to-one -one on those devices, that's been huge for getting students to read, right? Because if you have a device and then you have access to the Houston Public Library or whatever city public library, um, and most of those, all of those libraries have, you know, digital books that students can download. Now you're talking about kids being able to get books every day, all day, right? Teaching, they can access books, they can download books, they can listen to books. I tell teachers all the time, I do not shun audio books ever. I'm an audiobook lover. There are certain books that I love to hear the reader because the reader is amazing. They're way more amazing than me, right? But for kids, you know, listening to audiobooks, I say all the time, it gives an example of what good reading sounds like, right? And so when it comes to that, you know, that equity piece, I think, you know, at the district level, we have to have real conversations about getting kids access to books. And that's, again, where I think TCTLA is such a strong player because we talk to teachers about how to have those conversations with their principals. I need these books. I know how to teach teachers how to beg really well. Like, it's kind of a gift. Like, I'm like, listen, this is what you say. And you tell him this and you tell her that and you tell her that this research study says this, right? I can give teachers a lot of tools for begging to get classroom libraries. Uh, we have a lot of resources for TCTLA um, access to grants showing teachers like how to, you know, here's a grant that you can get for a classroom library. And so I think 
those are sort of, like I said, the conversations we're having at the conference. We're having with teachers about how to go back to your campus and talk to them about my kids need access to books because that's that equity piece, right? Where kids who go to schools at very wealthy districts have books and libraries and they can access it. And if they decide, I worked in a district that had a lot of money. So when we chose a book, I could just go to my department head and say, hey, listen, I need, you know, 120 of these books and they would just buy them, right? Well, that's not the case for everybody. So what do we do to make sure that kids and teachers have enough books at their fingertips, right? And like I said, that's the work that I love that we do at TCTLA is we're helping teachers have those conversations at the district level. Um, and, take, you know, taking back what you, what you got at the conference, taking that back to your principal, to your curriculum director. That's why we encourage principals and curriculum directors to come to the conference too, because I think when they see that like, oh my gosh, like this is something that I could be doing at my level to make sure that kids have books on my campus, in my classroom, um, and, and I could use this information here. You know, we always say, yes, we are a teacher organization, but we also love to see teacher leaders. We'd love to see curriculum specialists, superintendents. We'd love to see them there because, you know, sometimes they need to be reminded, like, this is what's happening at the classroom level, and this is what you can do to support, um, to support reading and student choice. And so many of those administrators were former teachers as well. Yeah. And so it's good to rekindle that passion and fire for teaching um, and relating to their teachers. Um, and I, again, I was just at the conference and can attest to it. There's something for everyone um, at the conference. Um, and I, I like your point about the, the digital reading and the access. Um, we've uh, had other conversations on the show around, you know, anytime we can break the chains of being um, bound by time and space, right? You can only, you know, practice your reading language arts from 9 to 10 a.m., Monday through Friday at a certain place at school, right? If, if we can break those chains and, and provide access to students 24-7, um, especially students that have limited access in the past or even in the present, um, I think that hopefully is a little bit of a game changer for um, for all students to continue to find those stories that mirror themselves and the windows, um, you know, into other uh, areas that they just may not have had access to um, in the past. I have to ask because you brought up your love for libraries. Um, I know it's one step removed uh, from your organization, but but what is the future of libraries and what is the future maybe in particular of school libraries? Because there's been a lot of transformation uh, in that area over the, the last several years as well. Um. You know, <laughs> the future of school libraries scares me a little bit um, because I think that that school libraries and what's on shelves are under attack right now. I think that there's a lot of uh, frankly dangerous conversation about this book shouldn't be on the shelf at a library, which is anti-library, right? <laughs> and is the library is an information source, right? It is a place to go find information, all the information, right? It is, it is, and, and having a library is a right, a right to information. Um, we all have that right to learn, right? Um, and so I, I know there was definitely a wave, I would say maybe six or seven years ago where sort of librarians were being kind of pushed away and there were, you know, like, oh, we don't need a librarian. We don't have to have one, it's fine. And I think very quickly schools realized, wait a second, <laughs> we do need librarians. Like what these people do is brilliant work. And so I think that that wave is sort of coming back where schools are like, you know, the heart of a library. And I, I believe there's a quote somewhere that says, if you look at the, the health of a library on a campus, that tells you the health of the campus, right? Uh, how active a library is, how much is being checked out. Um, and so I think people are coming back to this place where they're like, listen, we really need a good school librarian. We really need a good school library. Um, and the same thing with public libraries. And I think that I've seen the American Library Association do some brilliant work in the last two years, just kind of pushing back on like, listen, no one gets to tell us what goes in the library. <laughs> The library is the library. It is an information source. And so I love seeing the work of English teachers and not English teachers. I think teachers around the, the country are really sort of like, wait a second, guys, we cannot remove books from shelves like that is archaic. Um, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> we allow students access to books. We allow people to have access to books. Um, and so my hope is that people are are kind of hearing the fervor or hearing what I frankly call noise around, you know, this shouldn't, this book shouldn't be in the library or this book shouldn't be in the library. And I think people who really 
value and understand the power of reading, the power of libraries are starting to push back and they're going, wait a second, guys. Like, I may not like every book in the library, obviously, because I'm a human, um, but I also know that that doesn't give me the right to tell you you can't read it either. Um, and so, um, and I think too that uh, kids are starting to value libraries even more so too, right? They're starting to see like, this is a place where I can go where I can find information. Um, this is a place I can go where, you know, even if my mom says she doesn't want me to read this book, or even if my teacher doesn't have this book, I know how to go to the library and get the book. And so, um, you know, my my hope is that, you know, we are all kind of seeing the need for librarians and libraries and how powerful they are. Um, they're a great resource, obviously, for teachers, right? I mean, you you want to do a brilliant unit, you go talk to a li librarian, you know, um, they, they have whole degrees <laughs> in library science, right? Um, and so my hope is that we're all getting back to that place where we truly value libraries and we truly value the work of librarians as professionals and that we're teaching kids that this is the place to go for information. Um, and I think that teachers are in the place where they're going, they're much more protective of libraries, which makes me happy, right? That they're going, wait a second, wait a second. We are not, you know, pulling books from libraries. This is not right. We don't need to be doing this. And so I'm excited about, um, the level of teacher and librarian activism I'm seeing. I think that's an important role that teachers play. Um, whether they like it or whether we like it or not as teachers, you know, what we do is a political act in the sense that we're making choices, right? Um, and and so I'm loving, you know, seeing teachers stand up and say, hey, listen, we shouldn't be doing that, actually. <laughs> actually, this is not something that we want to teach. We want to teach that, you know, kids have access to information and free access to information. That is obviously age appropriate because sometimes that's what people like to say. Well, I don't want my third grader reading this. Well, yeah, of course we, yes, we, we don't, third graders aren't reading Macbeth, right? But we do want them to have access to things that are for them. Um, we want those things to be available to them. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. My kids, I try to take them once a week to the library and it's the most fun they have all week. Um, they're pretty young. They're not in school yet, but, um, but they love it and hopefully they'll continue that love. But I, I too have seen the resurgence of the library in, in recent years that uh, it really has been not just a place for books, but a place for knowledge and resources and um, the level of um, uh, versatility of librarians these days. is just unbelievable. They, they know, I wouldn't say know everything, but almost. Yeah, they're they know pretty close to, to knowing everything. <laughs> close, and they, they know how to guide students. Uh, you know, they're one part teacher, one part uh, custodian of information. And um, it's not just, oh, here's how to use the Dewey Decimal System, go find the book you're looking for. They're, they care so much about the books and about the children uh, and the adults too. And, and it's just inspiring. So I, I love your quote about the heart of the, the school library uh, tells you the heart of the, the school. Um, I, I just couldn't agree more. Um, all right, to transition uh, from reading, um, you can't really talk about reading without talking about writing. Um, and so let's, let's, let's turn to how can we better engage uh, our student writers? So I always say, you know, good writers are always readers, right? And so when we talk about engaging students in writing, we have to expose them to good reading. So I always start conversations about writing, about reading, because students, when they read well, they typically write well, right? Because they want to try what that author is doing. They say, oh, this is cool how this author does this. I want to try this in my own writing. And so the first step to engaging student writers is making sure that our students are exposed to good writing via reading, right? And then the same refrain, students need to choose their writing, right? We need students to have free choice in writing. A lot of times teachers have a prompt, right? This is the prompt you're going to write about. And then their students are sitting there and they're going, I can't write about that. I have no idea, right? And so I'm a big fan of having students have a couple of different prompts, right? Because we want the student to be able to, I tell teachers all the time, you want them to be able to write to the prompt. But if you just give them one, what if they don't have an idea for that, right? The other side of that is helping students generate a lot of ideas, right? Uh, I say, I spend a lot of time with teachers, teaching them about pre-writing. Students have to do a lot of pre-writing. They have to do a lot of generation of ideas um, in order to uh, be able to answer uh, almost any kind of prompt. The other thing too uh, with writing 
And reading is the same way. I always tell teachers, if you want your kids to be readers, you have to be a reader. They have to see you with a book in your hand all the time. When you're having independent reading time, you should be reading your book as well, right? You should at least, students should at least see you for a few minutes every day reading your own book. But the same thing occurs in writing. You know, writing takes courage, right? To be able to kind of you know, spill your heart out on paper, right? Because some of these prompts are really personal, right? About a, a place that's special to you, right? Um, so it takes courage to be able to do that. So it's important that students are seeing their teachers write, that their teachers are writing in front of them, with them, under that document camera, and that they're sharing their writing with students because students need to know that it's safe. Um, I was the student who always, you know, I, I wrote well, but sharing it, I was like, I'm never going to share this with somebody. Like, no <laughs> way. I'm never going to read this out loud. No, no, no. Even now as a writer, I have the hardest time sending stuff to my editor when it's time. And they're like, Ronnie, send it. I'm like, wait, give me one more week. And she's like, no, send it. Right. <laughs> um, but sharing with your students, sharing your own writing so they can share their writing as well. That's when, when, when we see writing engagement go up, right? When students are able to choose topics, when students are able to generate ideas and when students feel safe, right? And when they see their teacher. And so that's my, my big thing with, with, with writing is, is they need to be able to see those things, but that starts at the reading level, right? That students are reading something because when, when I teach students about dialogue, for example, I say, look at the book you're reading and look at, let's find a part that has dialogue in there. Number one, how is that dialogue punctuated? And they go, oh, well, they use the quotes and they use a comma and they use this, right? Okay, so I want you to put some dialogue in your own writing and just use that as an example to punctuate. So now I've taught a grammar lesson, right? I've taught them how to punctuate dialogue um, and and they're doing writing, right? And they're incorporating their reading. So all of that has happened as a result of the reading and the writing, right? They're, I'm sort of teaching all of these lessons at one time. And that's why those things are so closely connected, right? Because students can see good writing when they're reading, and then they can model that. Um, I tell students all the time, it's okay to model. You know, if you're modeling your work after, you know, Rick Riordan and, you know, Percy Jackson, I'm not mad. <laughs> I'm not upset about that. Rick Riordan is a great writer. Great. Do what he's doing. If you can do what he's doing, you're doing well, right? Um, and I think teachers sometimes get afraid because they're like, oh, I don't want to tell them writing is a formula. No, writing isn't a formula, but writing does have a form, right? There is a structure to all good writing, right? It happens a certain way. And so teaching kids about those forms and those structures can happen in their reading, and then they can take that to their writing. They can see their teacher doing that. I'll get under the document camera and say, you know, I really like the way that my author started off the book, and I think I want to start off my story that way too. So let's look at what my author did, and how can I do that? And then we sort of do that together. And then I say, I want everybody to look at the beginning of your book. Look at the first three lines. What if you did that in your own story? And then give them the opportunity to do that, right? So that reading and writing connection, like you said, we can't talk about one without the other um, because then after students try that, then they want to go back and see what else their author did. So they want to read a little more. Then they want to go try it in their own work. Um, and that's okay, right? It's okay that our students are modeling themselves after great authors. You know, we, we can't be mad at that. <laughs> Well, and it reminds me of, uh, you know, if you want to improve your basketball game as a young uh, basketball player, you watch Michael Jordan or LeBron James or I'm in Dallas, Dirk Nowitzki, and I want to model my shot after theirs or my, you know, a defensive style. It's the same thing. Why not learn from the best and, and model, I think, is um, very relatable for, for kids. Absolutely. I, I was a track coach as well when I was in the classroom. And, um, you know, whenever we looked at block starts, you know, the block start for our 100 meter runners is it's everything, right? It matters. It matters, right? And so we would watch videotapes of the best starters. You know, let's look at what Flojo did at the start, right? Uh, when we were talking about running the 400 meter, let's look at how Michael Johnson runs it, right? Let's look at how he starts. Like, the modeling is so important um, because kids need to see it. Listen, teachers need to see models. You know, when I tell teachers, you know, I want you to do group work this way, and they go, I said, one of my favorite stories is, you know, 
I wanted to do group work as a teacher. And every time I would do it, it was a disaster, right? My kids were everywhere. They were talking. I was talking. Nothing was happening. And my mentor teacher, she said, well, why don't you come to my classroom and watch when I do group work? <clears throat> and I went to her classroom and I watched her do group work. It was brilliant. Like her kids are like working and they're doing all these things. And I was like, what? This is possible. But I was looking at how she was doing it. Her students had, everybody in the group had a task. Everybody, there were time limits. Like she had all of these things in place. Once I saw it, I was like, oh, well now I can do it. So then I went back to my classroom and I did my group and I still structure group work that way, even at the collegiate level when I'm doing group work, right? But that model was everything to me, right? I had no idea how it worked. Like in my mind, I couldn't make it make sense. Then I saw the model and I was like, oh, now it makes sense. And kids are the same exact way when it comes to writing, right? When they see their, they can see their teacher doing something, they can see the author doing something. All of those are great models for them. Now they can go to their paper and go, oh, I saw my teacher do this. So let me try it myself. And students as young as second grade can model. I mean, kinder kids can model writing, right? They That's what little five or four and five-year-olds, I'm sure you know, do, right? They copy everything. <laughs> and then over time, they do different models and they make it their own. And they then, you know, they don't even realize it. So that's right. Uh, all right. So this show is called Accelerating Texas K-12 Education. And so we always like to ask towards the end of the conversation, what one or two things do you really feel strongly about, in particular with reading and writing, English language arts, um, can we be doing now to make up for the, the learning loss or the unrealized learning over the last two years um, and really accelerate um, what we're doing in the classrooms with our students. So what I would say is the, the one thing that we need to be really making sure that we're doing is that students are building reading stamina. So one of the things that I think probably happened for most of our kids uh, over the last two years and uh, is, they weren't reading as much, right? And so when our students have to sit down and take assessments, that's a long test. And they've got to be able to read for a sustained amount of time. And so reading stamina, just like running, right? I told you I was a track coach, so it's always going to be connected to running. Um, just like you have to run a little bit longer every day, in order to, like, if you want to get to marathon pace, right, you don't start off running uh, 26 miles, right? You actually don't ever run the 26 miles until the marathon, right? And so you may not have your students ever read for two hours, right, until test day, but they need to start off reading for five minutes, quiet, sustained reading. And then you need to add to that. And the same thing with writing, writing stamina, right? I love timed writings where they may write for five minutes. Now they're going to write for seven minutes straight. Now they're going to write for 12 minutes, right? That ability to be able to sustain that level of concentration over time when it comes to, we know that, you know, everything in the world is not our state assessment, but it is a thing, right? When it comes to that, when it comes to our students being able to sit for that amount of time, they have to practice, right? And so I would say, reading and writing stamina for me um, are really, really, really important. You know, yes, yes, student choice. Yes, we, we want that. But when you start talking about what, what are we going to see to kind of move the needle for our kids, I think that reading and writing stamina is something that teachers can be doing every single day to sort of add to that uh, for our kids, right, to be able to get them to that place where they're able to read or write for a sustained amount of time. I love it. And student choice could play into that. Obviously, if they're reading things that they are interested in, then they are more likely to build that stamina. Listen, kids will fight you almost for cutting into their reading time. When they're reading books and you say we're going to read for 12 minutes and you read, you let them read for 11 minutes and 20 seconds, they're like, hey, we have more time. Don't stop us. Right. Or if you say, oh, we're not going to have time to read today. They're like, what? So, again, student choice will help that reading and writing stamina because they want to write their story. They want time, right? And like I said, they will give teachers the evil lie for cutting off their time. And when kids are fighting us about their reading and writing time, that's a good fight to have. I always say, you know what? You're right. My bad. <laughs> I'll hush. You're winning, you're winning the battle. And, that, and that just uh, another misconception that these students today don't have the attention span. When yeah. they're engaged in something, they can spend hours on it, whether it's a video game or a book that they love, they do have that ability, um, but you have to engage them because if they're not engaged, they do not have the attention span. And 
Is that too different from from uh, the older generations? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> um, and, and I have to ask why I have you here. Uh, speaking of engagement and, and um, you know entering social media, as for the older students, um, has that had an influence as far as um, they're in some ways more engaged with reading and writing in a different form? Um, has that spilled over into an increase, a, de- a decrease in their you know abilities and their interest in? reading and writing, you know, books and, and that type of thing. Is there any correlation there? Uh, I think, um, I, I think it counts, right? I think sometimes we think, oh, they're, you know, they, they just, they're on social media all the time and they're, you know, they're just, that's little writing or that's not important writing or that's not real writing or that's not real reading. And I disagree. <laughs> I think that I tell people all the time, I think the brilliance of TikTok right? Number one, there's something called book talk where literally all they do is talk about books. There was a, I took my daughter, my daughter's 18. She's a senior in high school and she is, you know, a reader, a voracious reader who who likes to get her books at the bookstore because she wants to purchase them all. So I'm poor. Um, (laughs) I'm like the public library, ma'am. But there was a table at Barnes and Noble called book talk, right? Where these are books that these book TikTokers, uh, there's something called BookTube, where these people, all they do is talk about books, right? So in that way, like, that's a great thing that I see. But also, like, I have seen students, like, um, teaching or, or learning things on social media. And that takes reading, right? They'll hear about something on social media, an idea, like a historical fact. Then they go to Google. And so now they're Googling it. They're reading, <laughs> And I'm like, that's a thing, right? They're they're searching for information. And I think sometimes, you know, teachers feel like they're competing with social media. And I always tell them, don't compete, you know, be in concert with them, right? Figure out a way that you can take social media along with you um, to help you, right? Don't try to compete because you're not going to win. You're not going to win with the TikTok dances. You're not. But there are things that you can do in concert with social media, I think, that can grow your students, you know, reading and writing um, uh, stamina, their, their, their interest in reading and writing. Um, you know, you think about the thinking that goes into social media, like a post or a TikTok or something, like to think through, like, how can I get a message out in 15 seconds or one minute? You know, I hate, you know, you know, book reports, right? Write a book report, but a one minute book talk, that's great. You read a book, one minute, I want you to summarize it. I want you to tell me this and this and this, you only have one minute and you have to, you know, you can only use this many words on the screen. Like that's a great writing strategy, right? So now they've read something, now they're writing and part of our ELARTs are presenting, speaking and listening, right? So reading, writing, speaking and listening, right? So that's a great way to incorporate those speaking and listening uh, uh, teaks because they have to know that too. So I try not to, I try to tell teachers don't compete, you know, work with (laughs) social media because it really does help our kids think, right? There are a lot of great lessons that I see there, so. Yeah, and you got to think they're doing some pre-writing on a lot of those videos (laughs) they record or the things because they want to get it right for their peers. And so, um, yeah, we don't, maybe don't give them enough credit. And, And also, we talked about the misconception of the um, the attention spans. I think another um, ability that the younger generation has that, that we may not have as well is the multitasking and the capacity that they really are able to focus on multiple things at once and absorb information from multiple places while they're watching TV and doing their homework. I know. And they can retain that uh, that knowledge is amazing. We should yeah. embrace that as educators. I know. I, my daughter will have music going. She'll have something here. And, she'll, and I'm like, how that's happening? I don't know, but that's a skill. <laughs> yeah. And they end up getting A's and it's just yeah. uh, phenomenal. So, okay, we're at the end of our time and we always like to end our shows with a glass half full uh, story or example. And so, yeah, share with us something either from the, the TCTELA or um, from, um, you know, an encounter you have with students all the time that uh, has given you inspiration um, in the recent months. 
So I would say one of my my greatest stories as a as a teacher and like I said I was a coach um, was I had a student and I, I met her uh, her freshman year and let me tell you she was squirrely right she was not naughty just I said mouthy just very you know I'm not doing that I I don't want to do that I she let me know from the beginning that. She was not feeling anything that I was doing, right? She just wasn't. She was She was on my track team. She was in my English class. Like, she wasn't feeling any of it, right? She's just like, I'm kind of over it already, right? And of course, we know ninth graders are the smartest people in the whole world. They know more than anybody in the whole world, right? But I knew, I said, you know what? I'm going to love this kid. Like, I just, there was something about her. Maybe, maybe I might be a little mouthy. Maybe I saw a little bit of myself in, in her as well. And so she ran from me for four years and I was her teacher for one year. And, and we used to always talk about books and reading and writing and things like that. And she was the kind of student who was like, I don't like that book. And I was like, okay, we'll find you something else. Um, and a few years ago, uh, she became a teacher and she told someone, I'm doing this because I had an amazing teacher and an amazing coach who exposed me to books and reading and writing. And I want to be able to do that as well. And she's also a coach. And so I think for me, when I think about the future of educators and I think about the work that we do in classroom with kids, you know, we are teaching future teachers, right? We're, yes, we're, people always say, oh, teachers are, are making doctors and lawyers and engineers, but we're also making teachers, right? And so when we expose kids to reading and writing, when we build those relationships with them through books and reading and writing, we're growing our profession, right? We're exposing them to like, this is the work you get to do with other kids. And so that's one of my, and I have several of my former students who are, who are also English teachers. And it's just one of the best things because I see them sort of having those conversations with their kids about books. And I just think, yeah, this is the right thing I'm doing. <laughs> and so if teachers are ever wondering, like, am I on the right track? Just know that like, you're going to have kids who are going to turn around and want to do this work because of what they've done in your classroom, because of the relationships you've built in their classroom, because of the books you've given them in your classroom, right? They're going to say, I read this book in Mr. Smith's, you know, 10th grade class or third grade classroom. And I want to make sure that my students read it one day. And so for me, that's the, the, the one of the major highlights of this work is being able to watch our students become uh, ELA teachers. That that right there, that's it for me. <laughs> that's the, the cherry, that's the icing, that's the whole Sunday. The icing, the cherry on top, the, the, the chocolate sauce, it's everything. That's amazing. And and inspiring, right? Uh, we always say on the show also, you know, that the teachers should be teaching the students how to learn and then inspiring them to want to learn because all students need to be lifelong learners now. All adults need to be lifelong learners. It's not a, uh, a nice to have anymore. Everyone needs to continue growing and evolving. And so that's just inspiring that um, uh, even those doctors and lawyers hopefully are also lifelong learners, but when you can see them come back as teachers in your same profession, um, that's got to be very, very rewarding. And um, and just the impact uh, has that ripple effect uh, to, to so many more students that you'll never get to meet because they're their students. Um, so, oh my goodness, Ronnie, thank you so much for your time today and joining this episode. Um, it really was a blessing to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I had a great time. And to my audience, thank you so much for joining another episode of Accelerating Texas K-12 Education. Hopefully you learned a lot today and this will inspire you to go to the library and to pick up a book and uh, to continue reading uh, a diverse uh, range of books uh, yourself and uh, with your students, for your educators, hopefully you picked up uh, some tips. Um, lastly, Ronnie, is there uh, any way that uh, anyone in the audience, if they're interested in joining TCTELA or uh, learning more, uh, where should they go? They should go to TCT, TCT, it's a mouthful, TCTELA.org, um, and you can find all the information you're looking for. We are also on Twitter, um, and so you can follow our Twitter page, and we, we sort of keep that pretty up to date as well. Excellent. And thank you again to the audience for listening. Uh, check out past episodes on our website or anywhere that you consume your podcasts. And uh, we thank you for joining us. Uh, always, always keep learning and we'll see you next time.